0: Let's turn to Judges 2 this morning. Judges Judges 2, we'll read verses 11 to 23. This is in connection with a new sermon series. I'm uh, preaching through Ruth, the book of Ruth, but uh, we're getting some background here in Judges chapter 2. Judges 2 has the uh, death of Joshua, the servant of the Lord. That was verse 8. He died when he was 110 years old. So here's Judges 2, verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, or wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them up out of the the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Let's turn now to... Maybe I can read a few more verses there. I see it's in the bulletin too. Judges 2, verse 20. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Turn now to the book of Ruth. See, it comes at the end of Judges. It's one of those that are chronologically linked, so it kind of fits really well that at the end of Judges, you move right into the book of Ruth. I want to read the last verse of Judges 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now we begin the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi. Naomi the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the women served so the woman, that's Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on their way, on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husband's? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two, of them went in, uh, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And that's the scripture reading for this morning. Let's have our Bibles open to these first five verses. This will form the text, the focus of the sermon this morning. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. After the sermon, we're going to sing hymn 84, verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters loved by Jesus Christ our Lord, have you personally ever hit rock bottom? I've been getting to know some of you, meet with you, and it turns out more, there's a few that know what it's like to hit rock bottom? Maybe for some it's financially, you go bankrupt. Some have been betrayed by your life partner. Some know about alcohol, drugs. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Then how about this? You ever wish somebody next to you somebody close to you somebody that you love do you ever wish that they would hit rock bottom gently maybe because you love them you want them to hit rock bottom gently you don't want them in the hospital necessarily you want them to come to themselves you know the prodigal son in the far off land that he would come to himself he would gently wake up and realize he's going to hell if things don't change I know some families have used what's called an intervention to create a rock bottom. All the families sit down with their loved one that they're concerned about. All the family members say, we know what's going on. If you don't change, this is your rock bottom. Wake up. It's an intervention. You artificially create a rock bottom. You make ultimatums black and white, make it clear. Because rock bottom is the place where things happen. It's where you give up on yourself. You realize you have to fess up and and get real help. God does this often. He brings His people to rock bottom, sometimes gently, but most often violently. He's sick of His people being stuck in a pattern of sin and misery. Yeah, my throat's going to give me trouble today. (coughs) God is sick of His people being stuck in a rut of sin and misery. If He has no compassion, He would do nothing. If He has no compassion, He'd leave you, He'd leave me stuck and, and sinking in the quicksand of our own sinful choices. But God's not doing nothing. Beginning in this book of Ruth, we see God doing something. And He's putting Himself in the headlines of of this family, not only Israel, but of this Israelite family in particular. And He's making them hit rock bottom. And so our first five verses, it's like a set of five bullet points here. Our introduction almost has no emotion to it. It goes like this, famine in the land of Israel. Family moves off to Moab, fathers die, sons die. Five verses show that this family is doomed. They're going full speed to a dead end. And we're going to be asking why. I always ask why. Maybe you do too. Even if it's not a simple answer, we don't expect a simple answer. There's this one family of Elimelech, and he's a symbol. He's a picture of a whole country of Israel. This family is a canary in the coal mine. Maybe you've heard of that expression a canary in the coal mine, an early indicator. This little bird, if it's down in the coal mine, if it dies, that's a bad sign. You better get out of there. And so this one family is in danger, it leaves Israel. The promised land is cursed. It's not safe to be there. The hand of the Lord has gone out against us. That's Naomi's uh, wording in in verse 13. And this becomes a glimpse of an exile that's going on. Where sometime in the future you know that Israel would be taken out of the promised land. Well here here are some people that say we can't survive in this promised land. Why? Why? All this bad news. And I'm not sure if this family of Elimelech is ever going to get an answer. But this book of Ruth is trying to put it together for us. Spell it out. God has had enough of the time of the judges. Verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So that's the time of the judges it's talking about. There was a famine in the land. And we read from Judges just to get a taste of this, a glimpse of it. What God has had enough of? Israel going into idolatry. Israel doing what's right in their own eyes. God punishing them. He sends enemies to trample on them. Israel cries out to the Lord. The Lord sends judges, judges like you know, Ehud, Deborah, uh, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. The cycle goes on forever. It's like sin, suffer, scream, and save. The book of Judges ends with that line. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. God puts his finger on the problem. And he declares the solution. His leader, that's the solution. And not just any. It's not saying, let's switch up our style of government. Maybe you're going to read this and think, oh, they just need to go from a judgeocracy to a democracy or something. Or uh, maybe a monarchy. No, 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 no. We're looking for a king who's after God's own heart. A king like David. Spoiler alert. Ruth turns out to be the great-grandmother of David. And that's all in the line pointing to the son of David, Jesus Christ. Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But but here's the point. Without Christ as shepherd, we are like sheep that go astray. Without Jesus Christ as king, we will all do what's right in our own eyes. And it's going to be the cycle of frustration spiraling out of control toward hell. Rock bottom. And you know this probably from personal experience. Haven't you settled with this kind of chaos of the time of judges? You settle with a level of being out of control once in a while. Like those Israelites back then, you would sin and suffer and scream till you're saved. Repeat. Repeat again. Maybe you accept a certain level of sinfulness, brokenness in your life, make peace with this and have a balance, that you have sin in one corner of your life and then a little bit of religion in the other corner of your life, like the time of the judges. Every once in a while you hear somebody come along like a judge, you get some good pointers, be a better person, try harder. And then you're back in the same cycle. You hear what God just said? Israel was doing right in their own eyes because, why? There is no king in Israel. You don't have my king in charge. You're doing what's right in your own eyes. Think about what Paul, how he refers to this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Paul, the apostle, uses that language a lot. The flesh is the old sin nature. This is the language for wants and desires and appetites. You want to know what's doing right in your own eyes? You've got it in your own heart. You're doing what's right in your own eyes when you let your screens dictate your life. Your fridge, your pantry dictates your life. Your bed, your sleep, your next purchase, all your shopping. It's all running your life, no different from an unbeliever. And then what? You wake up. You're suffering. You realize that these idols are sucking the life out of you. And you scream, you cry out to help for the Lord, that the Lord would help you, that He would have compassion and save you. Maybe this describes your life, because it's run by the flesh. That's how it happens. It's like you have no king. You're doing what's right in your own eyes. And it's a dead end, and you know it. Now, that's the note we begin with in the book of Ruth. Something seriously wrong in the land of Israel. There's a famine in the land. It's a clue that there's, there's something wrong, that creation itself is groaning because the sons of God have not yet been revealed. The righteous ones are not ruling the promised land like we're hoping. And picture the Lord God in heaven I often picture God in heaven with his full control. And maybe it's because I'm more uh, of an engineering mind, but I imagine heaven with a control room. I know God has angels and servants and he can just speak. But but I imagine a control room, much like the cockpit of an airplane. All these knobs and switches and levers, lights and screens. And I picture the Lord God in heaven in, in that control room with his hand on a lever. This is the famine lever, and he pulls it. There are other levers too, right? I've used enemy warfare. That doesn't seem to be very effective. I've got pestilence and plague. Maybe, maybe that's coming next. So you have to see the Lord God in charge, in total control. My people have been stuck in a rut of sin. I'm going to pull the famine lever and bring them down another level lower to, walk, to rock bottom. Notice this happens to Bethlehem of all places. Verse one: a Certain man of Bethlehem of Judah. Anyone know what Bethlehem's famous for? Okay, yeah, you're going to say Christmas and Jesus, or I don't know, all the kids. Are, but but you know what Bethlehem's famous for? In the name of Bethlehem, how that city got that, or that little town gets the name? It's Bethlehem, House of Bread. They're, they're famous for growing wheat. This is the breadbasket town of Israel. And the famine, you, you have to imagine, the famine is severe because the breadbasket town is without bread. The food supply has been shut off to the entire nation. Has anyone noticed this in Israel? It would have been great. Imagine if, how awesome this would be if people were like, "Hey, we don't have much to eat these days. I wonder if we're doing something wrong here. Is it because we're serving idols?" I remember God saying something like, "If we serve idols while we're in the promised land, He will send us famine." But no, no, the bell's not ringing. The king, after God's own heart, he would be coaching God's people through this. Hello, people, a king would say. Wake up. This is God bringing the fruit of your sin upon you. And we have a whole nation following their own heart. And it's going from bad to worse. There's no king in Israel. Elimelech gets his family to move to Moab. He's an interesting fellow, this Elimelech. First of all, his name means, my God is king. And it certainly seems like that's not working out, that name. My God is not king would be more realistic. Because instead of repenting, he takes his family on this move to Moab. I don't know, other guys have moved if you, if you know your Bible, you remember Abraham, he was stuck in a famine so him and Sarah went to Egypt or you know Jacob or you know Joseph these guys end up going to Egypt and there are famines but this is a famine in the land of Israel back then it was the land of Canaan and Canaan was getting the famine they deserved, now it's Israel here's a message for God's own people what are you doing moving away? Do you know anything about Moab? Across the other side of the Dead Sea, up in the hill country there? Do you know what their name is? My God is Chemosh. That's the God they serve. They have that false religion in that country. And there's Elimelech. My God is king, taking his family to My God is Chemosh. You tell, this is going worse. And in the opening verses, the famine lever isn't working. Why? Because people escape. They leave. They avoid reckoning. What's God going to do? Let's watch God move a few more levers to get His people to, to be closer to rock bottom and wake up. So the next... Elimelech dies. Are we as low as we need to go yet? And then there are two sons, Malon and Kilion. Verse 4 says, They took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Do you get a sense of the trouble building up here? These marriages between believers and unbelievers? Can you tell the difference between a Christian and an unchristian? These Israelites, they're marrying anyone they choose. What's right in their own eyes? These young men are like, well, she looks hot. Or she loves me. Never mind that she worships the god Chemosh, the god of Moab. I could win her over. Yeah, right. This should make you extremely uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. I have to make this clear today too because if you're looking for a life's partner marry only in the Lord is what God says First Corinthians 7 or 2 Corinthians 6 do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and watch out for this because if you want to follow your own heart God can pull those levers and turn those knobs and get that happening for you He can give you what you want Can hand you over to it. And it's a world of pain. And isolation. Isolation comes with that. Who do you call out to when people who have loved you, you've ignored them? When they warned you, you ignored them. Now, now you're living in trouble and there's no one to talk to. I'm not sure if we've gotten far enough with Ruth and Orpah the kind of trouble that they might be experiencing here. There's possibly infertility going on. We can't tell for certain exactly how long have they been married yet. Ten years in that country. There's silence from the womb. Orpah and Ruth have been married for a bit and, and there's no children on the way. And that's, not, that's not enough yet for rock bottom. Two more switches are pulled. God shuts down the life of Malon. There's a young man, probably. Killion? another one, dead. This has to be rock bottom, isn't it? Because this is supernatural. How do you explain all of these layers of trouble compounded on each other? And this family line of Elimelech has come to an end. There is no men left to Elimelech. No name. No descendants, no inheritance. The Elimelech line has dried up. It's a good time to collect your thoughts, because you trace these five verses, and it's just going downhill fast. This family of sinners, from a nation of sinners, doom. And yet, you know how you'd read a book, if it's only like the first five verses, you're like, oh, there's a lot more here. It can't just end right now. You, you, you look ahead, you know, there's got to be some good news. It's going to get better. But already now, you can get a sense of God's sovereign, absolute control. And that in itself is good news. You get a sense of God's compassion. But you know that even as He gives people over to what they want, you want to do what's right in your own eyes? I will give you what's right in your own eyes. Let's play that out. Let's see how well that works out for you. Though I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked... I'd rather that you repent and turn to me. Let's show you where this leads. And if we listen to Naomi, the mother who is grieving, she is broken and bitter. There are hints along the way. I know I didn't draw much attention to it. Uh, at, at not at this time, I won't. But uh, as she's speaking to her daughters-in-law, she is actually using some wording about the Lord. She knows something about the Lord. Uh, Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And there's something, even in the mixed-up idea that Naomi has in her theology and her understanding of God, she has this truth. May the Lord deal kindly. And and if you know there's a Hebrew word, of course there's a Hebrew word behind that, and it's going to be chesed, steadfast love. The covenant love, the committed love. The Lord deal with that love that He's committed to you. And it's already embedded in, in in these dark verses. We know things of the truth, that there is hope. And Naomi, she's got more truth planted in her and working its way out. Verse 13 She says, For it grieves me very much that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's truth. There's not too many people these days. I have have even met Christians who avoid this truth. Naomi doesn't avoid it. A lot of people say that God is not doing this. All this trouble is not from God, people would say. All this evil. Tragedy is not from God, they would say. Or, or there's a softer version. Oh, God didn't make it happen. He, he never really pulled the levers. He just allowed it. It's just garbage theology. And Naomi has none of that. You hear it in verse 21. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me back again, empty is loaded with this blunt truth. God has sent trouble. Let's call it for what it is. He's pulled the levers. He sends the angel of death. This is the Lord. He sends both good and evil, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, health and sickness. You have to see this point then. God sends trouble and He sends it so that we would look up to Him. God is doing this. What will it take to get your attention? And you know from the book of Job, that trouble and disaster is not always because of a sin or your sin or somebody's. It's not always because of entrenched patterns of sinfulness like here in Ruth. Sometimes God pulls the rug out from under His children to show His strength and His power and His grace. Think of the Apostle Paul with that thorn in his side, a messenger of Satan. It could be like for many who suffer, it's a call to persevere. My grace is sufficient for you. But but, here's the book of Ruth. And it's clearly meant for repentance this time. Even Naomi. In her grief, she begins asking questions like, why is this happening to me? What have I done? You know where you see that? Verse 21. It's basic starting point. Ask this. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You hear that? The Lord has testified against me. He's pointing right at me. He's pointing out the wrong that I've done. And she must be scrambling, thinking of all the choices that she has made. Some obvious ones maybe, and some not so obvious. And she is really thinking about it, examining herself. And so I don't want you to miss this opportunity, brothers and sisters, when you are broke, or sick, or lonely, or whatever tragedy you're going to. Whatever you're going through. Don't miss this opportunity, because you live in a life... In this world that you can just pull more levers and call people up and there are government agencies and there are so many ways to insulate you from this wake-up call you can borrow money when you're broke you can you you can get out of trouble by calling a friend but how often isn't the lord saying this last thing that i just did in your life wake up are you putting me first are you following my king? Or are you doing what's right in your own eyes? Why has the hand of the Lord gone out against me? What am I doing wrong? I urge you, if you are not one who asks this, ask it. I know some of you, and you ask this often. You already do this. But for others... It never crosses your mind that your life is seriously messed up. That you need a king. Your road is a dead end and you're going fast. God says, you need my king. That's the bottom line. You need a leader who will warn you. You need his word of authority in your life. His command to make sure that you don't do what's right in your own eyes. And I'm not sure if, if in these first five verses, do you get it? Do we get it? How convinced the Lord is about His solution. How determined, how committed the Lord is for this. Because you go on this roller coaster ride of sinning and being punished and suffering. And then crying out and screaming to the Lord and being delivered again. and you have This roller coaster, God says, it comes to an end with my King. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command you. And think of God's triumphant promise, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds. I will write my law in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what my King will do. He'll give you my Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Not all this doing what's right in your own eyes anymore. So brothers and sisters, I'm not sure if we have this drilled into us enough. Maybe we, I emphasize the gospel so often about Christ as our High Priest. As our High Priest, He's giving His life as a perfect offering to take away your sins. Forgiveness in His blood. He has taken rock bottom for you. I emphasize that a lot. As Christ is High Priest, but how often are you shown Christ as King, with all authority? He's pushing back against the constant force of evil, sin, against our stubborn natures that identify with Satan. In just five verses, we're showing a family in this spiral vortex to destruction. Who can save? God says, my king, not only will he do away with your sin, forgiveness, He's going to lead you like a king does. He'll send you His Holy Spirit. He's going to work a new strength inside you. He's going to surround you with believers on the outside of you. This is your God. His compassion on you who are stuck in a rut. You have to see Christ as king at God's right hand. Remember all authority given to Christ? At God's right hand... He is now pulling the levers. Jesus Christ, your King. Wasn't it recently He pulled that big COVID lever? Or how about the the government overreach lever? How about the inflation lever? Or the, the worker shortage? And then, in your own life, individual levers and knobs and buttons, you name it, Christ is saying, Don't just be about escaping this next little bit of trouble I'm sending you. Bad idea if you're packing up to go to Moab. Your king is saying, Let me walk you through this. The point why you're here, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Why are you here? I have a kingdom. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. My kingdom is here. All authority is mine. Have you lost sight of that? So, brothers and sisters, this is the key. You used to do what's right in your own eyes, just like the world of unbelievers. But in this book of Ruth, right at the start, We sense God's delight in rescuing those who are helplessly digging themselves, only deeper. He has a great plan for Ruth and Naomi. And his answer is, the king. Hear him say, you you don't need to reach rock bottom. Today, when you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Pray for my spirit. I'll gladly give my spirit. Pray for wisdom. I'll gladly give you wisdom. This is your king speaking. Surround yourself with people who love me. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to reach rock bottom. Jesus Christ is your King. He will lead you. Listen to Him. Amen.